Good morning. We're reading from Acts 2, verses 14 to 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. 
that amazing? You know, I, I think sometimes we get lost in wanting to hurry into the next thing, but we're deliberately trying to slow down here a little bit. Think for your own soul. But reading just large swaths of scripture like that, it's a deep practice that the church did together. What we're entering into is not just something we do around here, but we're joining in with saints from thousands of years, the word of the Lord being proclaimed forth, and all of us bear witness to it. So I'm Caleb. I haven't met you yet. I serve as one of the pastors here. I'm going to, in that same posture, invite you to do something maybe a little bit different. Um, I want you, you can close your eyes or not. You don't have to. I'm not going to make you do anything. You don't have to do this at all. But if you want to, I'm going to invite you just to go to a place in your mind where you are just like completely overwhelmed, amazed, terrified of something. Maybe someone was asking you to do something that scared you. Maybe you jumped out of a plane. I don't know what that might be. But just I want to invite you to get that image just in your mind for a second. What was happening? Was it scary? So I want you to grab that image because you're going to need that image as we journey together (laughs) into this text. For me, one of the most just like mind, body, soul experiment that I did to myself is when I went to the White Water Center. Been there multiple times. Um, It's been some good and some bad. Um, One time I broke my collarbone. That's a different story. For a different day, different illustration. That one might be on like pride or something. I don't know. Doing something that I shouldn't have tried yet. But I was invited to, if you have been there before, this will make sense. If not, go there. There is this like 100-foot zip line. It's amazing. And I've done that one a few times. And like I've, I've had that experience of I might have a little bit of a terror of heights, and I'm just ignoring my body that, no, nah, don't worry about it. I'm just going to do this anyway. So I've done that before, but then there is this other thing to the side of the zip line, and it's a free fall. And what they do, I kid you not, they just hook you in the back, like one little hook right here. They just hook you in. They're like, all right, just walk off the ledge. Can I hold on to anything? No, there's nothing to hold on to. You just, you just, this little carabiner hook just hooked in the back, and you're just, all right, this is it. This is the end of my life as I know it, right here. For like two-thirds of that fall, that's why they call it a free fall, because there's no resistance at all. You feel nothing. And then it catches you. Somehow it doesn't choke you or strangle you, but somehow it does just, like, catch you at the end. You're safe. But just in that moment, I'm like, this is real. (laughs) I'm terrified. But I'm so glad that I took my friend up on that invitation because I did it multiple times after that. And it was just, it was exhilarating. 
And I, and I want, the reason why I wanted you to grab that image of whatever that terrifying moment or exciting moment was for you is such a small scale, it'll help, but it's such a small scale of what was happening to the people here in this scene. They were invited into something that was terrifying. But it changed everything. It said 3,000 people responded. It said they were cut to the bone. You're going to need that image because this is going to be an arduous journey through a lot of theology and prophecy and all these things. Like the speech is is dense. I think this is probably one of the most densest chapters in the Bible. And I have to do this in like 45 to 50 minutes somehow. So pray for me as well as we work through this together. Grab that image and just let's journey together. Because the reason why this is so dense, there's these things that the biblical authors would use, and they're called design patterns. Design patterns are these repeated images, ideas, all of these things that are grabbing hundreds of stories and they're linking them together. And they do this all over the place in the Bible. And I saw at least four of these here just in this passage. We got a long way to go, but I'm going to work quickly through a lot of that and then slow down in areas where, man, there's some incredible invitations for the people of God. I want you so bad to get this. I believe that this is just, this will transform how you view yourself, how you view people as well. So I've got two points for you. Honestly, this is just going to be a part two of your sermon last week because there's so much happening here. So I'm going to give you kind of the same outline of the points, and I'm going to give you two, all right? First, Pentecost is the restoration of the people of God, Israel, and this building of these new temple, I put that in plural, because I'm was gonna I'm gonna explain that here in a second. And the second thing, these are abstract, but they're dense, and I promise they'll make sense. Pentecost is the ascension of this new priesthood through the waters of baptism. How are we doing? We ready? Okay, I'm telling you, this is dense. This might feel a little bit luxury, but I promise you, Man, the invite from Jesus is, is incredible. So I'm going to go backwards to work forward, starting in verse 1 of Acts 2. So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound like a violent wind, and tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each one of them. Design pattern number one, fire and wind. So this is something that happens just throughout all of Scripture. Typically, what happens is when God just shows up, when heaven has invaded earth, wind and fire just break out. There's a lot of examples of this. The burning bush is one. We know this story if we're familiar. So this fire, this presence is here. Elijah is another kind of example of this fiery, windy thundery, whatever the heck's happening here. But the biggest one that I want to draw us to, because honestly, this passage is, is almost a replaying of this scene, is Exodus 19. So if you know this, this is the like pivotal moment for the people of Israel. They're at this mountain, and God's presence shows up. 
There's thunder and lightning. I'm going to do a lot of this today where I'm just going to have the reference and I'm going to point some things out. But the reference is for you to go back and fact check me if you want. But so there's thunder, there's lightning. It says everyone in the camp just trembled. God's presence descended on this mountain like a fire. What's happening here? Well, God's presence has come and invaded into human space, and he's carving out space for himself to dwell. He's using fire to carve out temple space. And remember, the temple in the Bible, it was the place, the like epicenter where God's presence would be among his people. So this is like the first moment of this. God is here with us. And they trembled. <laughs> and they should have. That was horrifying, I'm sure. This mountain's just on fire. I mean, struck by lightning. Let's just enter into that. It's a terrifying thing. So fire is carving out this temple space. And when we read Acts 2, it's like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what's happening there. Wind and fire descending on the people. And it says in verse 5 and 6, Now all the Jews from every nation under heaven were there. When they heard this sound, they came together in bewilderment. That's Exodus 19. Of course, God is here. The presence of God is here, and he's in the fire, and he's in the wind, except he's not in just one location anymore. It says he has separated out among several people. It's not one place, but it's these little mobile temples. It's temples on feet. These mobile hotspots of heaven and earth. God's presence is here. So with that backdrop set, Exodus 19 playing again, Peter, like Moses, would stand in the gap between the presence of God and the people, and he would say some pretty wild claims. Remember last week we, talked, we saw that the 15 places that were listed in Acts 2, it, it demonstrated the, the nations coming to this location. This is what I love about the Bible because it, it means so many things all at once. So it, while it absolutely is supposed to get us to think of the Tower of Babel, this is the reversal of Babel. If you have no idea what I'm saying, go listen to last week. God is reversing what humanity has done. He's, he is reclaiming the nations. It is absolutely that, but it's also something else as well. This is a story about prophecy that's coming true. This is a story about God restoring his people. And I promise you, this will connect. The point for your life is coming, but just, just lean in with me. These nations that are listed in Acts 2, they're also talked about in Isaiah 11. And the context there is that God's people have chosen everything but God, kind of like us. They've decided for themselves that we do not want to be in partnership with God. We actually think we could exist and do better in a world without him. And so as Ben said last week, that's Romans 1, he just gave them over to that. 
I think we get that confused. It's that like God's wrath is just like, okay, it's, it's him just being so mad and upset. And that's true. He's, he has emotion. But one of the worst things that he can do is just let us have what we want. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be ruled by other nations, so much so that they started looking like them. And God said, okay, fine, here you go. And so the nations overtook the people of God and dispersed them out throughout the world. Some did get to come back home, but most of them did not. Just the emotional, psychological trauma that would have existed in them that they're gone from their homeland. And they're just like waiting for the day that God would restore them again. That's why the disciples would ask all the time, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And so this prophecy here in Isaiah 11, let me pull that up, is that God is going to reach out his hand and reclaim this remnant of people from all of these places. He's going to gather the exiles of Israel and assemble them from the four quarters of the earth. And so it's really significant that Luke tells us in Acts that these people from the, the nations, they were Jewish. They were ethnically Jewish or converted to Judaism. But they had different languages, they had different cultures. And it says they were from all of these places representing the whole known earth and they're back in their land. And so the disciples, when they're asking, God, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Acts 2, it's, it's showing we're, we're entering into that here. Because the questions that they asked in verse 6 is the same question that any Israelite here in this scene had been asking for 600 years. Just imagine this. Every time they're trudging up this hill to Jerusalem, going to pay homage to a God that said that I'm going to restore you. Is this the year, Lord? Is this the year, Lord? Nope. Nope. Silence. Have you felt that way before? Is this the time? Nothing. Years after years, generations removed. But then, <laughs> then they show up in this scene and there's these rumors of fire and wind. Wait a minute. Is that Exodus 19? Is God here? Is the presence of God here? You see this regnet fisherman just stand up and start proclaiming all of these things, and they're hearing, wait a minute, God's spirit has been poured out? These words would have been electric to them. And I think we miss this because we're so divorced from the Old Testament. But one of the biggest clues I think that we can get that what Peter is addressing this prophecy is in the very end of his speech when he says these words, let all of the house of Israel be assured of this. So that language, that phrase there, it is especially in the prophet Ezekiel talking about all of Israel. 
the 12 tribes of Israel. So Luke, the author of Acts, he has this eye set on Ezekiel. He uses Joel in here. He talks about David. He has his eye set on this prophecy of this day when all the tribes will come back together and be reunited here, given a new king, given a new covenant, given a new partnership. And so when he's speaking from Joel in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Well, of course he did. It's right there. God has shown up in our midst. Similarly, Ezekiel would prophesy about this day. His account would go like this, prophesy of these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I will make breath enter into you and you will come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. He continues on and he says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them around and bring them back to their land. I will be their God. No longer will they be divided. The Jews longed for a day where God would recreate them, where he would give them this promised king where he would dwell in their midst again. Do you see what's happening? This is happening right now. He is here. God is carving out the temple space. And he's in the midst of these people that for so long had believed that God has abandoned us. Ezekiel continues, my servant David will be a king over them. Jesus remembers from the line of David, they'll have one shepherd. He will be a prince for them forever. I will make with them an everlasting partnership covenant. I will, I love this, establish and increase their numbers. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. Can't make this stuff up. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. The temple will be with them. And they would be reunified and reunited. They'd be given another chance at partnership. And Peter stands up and he says, your king has come and he's here to done all this. And you killed him. Oof. We are finally able to be restored, but we killed the one guy that was going to be in charge of us. He says, listen, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we're all witnesses of it. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and King, and they were slain. They were out. Everything had just converged in one moment where, okay, finally God is going to restore us and we can be with him again. But we killed the king, but the king has come back to life and now he reigns over all of us. And they were gone. 3,000 of them just slain, more in the days to come from all over the known world. And so God came and he blew the roof off the place. 
heaven and earth have been united. And it started with 120 people and it multiplied out to 3,000, even more in the days ahead. A new temple, a collection of temples, a mobile hotspot of heaven and earth, ruled by a new king, exalted over all. In the New Testament, rightly, this wasn't new language to them, this idea of you being a temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So, like, what does this matter, right? Like, why is this ancient temple, this, this idea of these old buildings and this ancient people, like, why does that matter? If you are a follower of Jesus, listen to me. The idea of you being a temple frames every part of your spiritual life. This frames every part of who you are. Because we don't have to go to pilgrimage to this old building anymore. God's presence now dwells in people. Where the Jews would come from all over the known world to be hopefully in the presence of God and sacrifice all of these things. We would have a final sacrifice. The presence of God would manifest over people and you would carry the presence of God. Do you see that? You are a mobile temple of the presence of God. A hot spot. And so they did. They went home. <laughs> the Jews, they were, they were passing through. Remember, this is, they're coming to this place from all over the world, and then they would go home. Where did they go? To the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8, it happened then, and it is happening. I love it. You just can't make this stuff up. Pentecost matters. I know it's been an arduous journey through seeing how God restored this ancient people, set up this new temple. But listen, that matters because that means that the Bible's not a sham. That means that every little thing will come to pass. That means that we can have confidence that God has set up his presence among humans again. We don't have to go through the pain of sacrificial system to be in the presence. He dwells in you, follower of Jesus. Go read Revelation 21. There's no temple there. Don't take my word for it. John says there's no temple there. Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple there. <laughs> For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He's in our midst. You're a mobile hotspot of heaven and earth, and the Spirit of God indwells you. So take care of the temple. Steward it. Bring the presence of God to those everywhere. And I still don't really understand how the internet works. I think it's magic. You know, when I was a kid, yeah, that's right, amen. <laughs> we're just assuming, like, we're good with this thing, you know? Let's put our whole lives out there on it. So, like, 
when I was a kid, we had one computer, and it was in the family room. And it was dial-up. If you don't know what that is, it took you hours to get on the computer. And then it took you hours to get on the internet. Like, it just didn't matter. Like, we were, I guess we were just connected still. I don't know how we, like, are connected now without it. But it's just, like, it just didn't matter. Because it was so hard to, like, get on the internet and get to the internet. But now we have these, like, stupid things. And Steve Jobs has now become our David, in a sense. He has ushered in a new era of mobile hotspots. I was in Madagascar a few years ago, and, I mean, literally, the ends of the earth here. I, was on, not, I wasn't even on Madagascar. I was on an island off of the island of Madagascar. And then when we got on that island, we went an hour around the island to get to the ends of the earth. That was one of the most beautiful places. But what's so amazing to me, because of Wi-Fi, I could still talk with my, well, she wasn't my wife then, but with Alyssa. I could still have a conversation. I could still be connected with her. It was hard. It was like 4.30 in the morning for me. It was like 9.30 at night for her. But we could still talk. I didn't have to go to the family room, in a sense. I could be wherever in the world and talk with her because of this mobile hotspot. You see that. We don't need the family room computer anymore. We do not need the building. You are actually these mobile hotspots in the earth. Carrying your iPhone-only presence of God wherever you are. I love my Android peeps, but, I mean, you know how it is. <laughs> but I'm not a heretic. <sighs> I'm tried and true. Wherever you are. Your mobile hotspot of heaven and earth. And I love, I think the second point is even more exciting so we've got that. We're a temple, okay? But Pentecost is also this establishment, this ascension of this priesthood through baptism. One of the things that I think struck me the most about this passage is just like, I don't know, how anticlimactic Peter's response is to thousands of people just weeping in front of him. Like, when I watch this stuff in the movies, like, this is where you charge the enemy, right? Where just people are just, like, weeping, and they're, like, frustrated, and they're, like, ready to, like, go to war and do something. And Peter says, go jump in a lake and let somebody hold you underwater. <laughs> like, and I, I, know we, I know if we're Christians, we know the answer here. Like, yes, of course, when you become a believer. There's four things you do. You get baptized, you buy a Bible, you set up online giving on the New Life Church app, and you go to church. <laughs> That's just what you do. Well, there has to be more going on here, right? Well, of course there is, because we got a design pattern. Baptism, it, 
Just the idea of it is the most, one of the most sacred acts that we could participate in as followers of Jesus, and we have, no pun intended, watered this thing down. But baptism is majestic, is gnarly. What you're claiming, what you're putting allegiance into, what you're joining is serious, and it's wild. So maybe just a little bit more context to put some of this in perspective. Why would this have mattered, I guess? Or what was so significant about Peter saying, be baptized? Well, in true fashion, I'm going to take you to the beginning of the Bible. (laughs) The first really thing that we see in baptism starts in the beginning. If you're doing our reading plan then you just read this, that the Spirit of God is hovering over these chaotic waters. And God then separates waters from land. It actually says that land passes through these waters. And on the other side, this land is now habitable. It's where life can flourish. And so God is separating out the world. But what happens then when we were like, nope, we want to be our own gods, we're going to define for ourselves what's good and evil and go our own way, God let the world go back into chaos again. That's the flood. It says, okay, you don't want to be with me. You don't want me. That means you don't want the order that I have set. So I'm going to give you what you want. You want chaos. And so the floods just rain down on the earth. But what happens, God takes this remnant family and he passes them through the waters. It even says that his arm shuts them in. He saves them, he delivers them through these waters. And listen, on the other side of the waters, God gives them this identity. Your image bearer. Go multiply, be fruitful. So there's this now identity, there's this purpose that has been given on the other side, passing through these chaos waters. We go to Moses. Again, I cannot make this stuff up. Moses, as a baby, is delivered through the waters. The word there that is used for this little ark thing that he's floating down the waters on is the same exact word for Noah's ark. And it's the only other time in the Bible it's used. We got a design pattern going on here. Let's chase this thing. So Moses then is this new like Noah. God is saying, I'm going to rescue my people and I'm going to deliver them. How did they get delivered? Through the waters, the Red Sea. And on the other side of it, he says, I have brought you out of Egypt. I've delivered you from evil, from chaos. And now I'm giving you this identity. And what happens? Exodus 19, Mount Sinai. You are my chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. That is who you are. And then here's what you're going to do. You're going to be a vehicle of blessing. You're mine. How? Because I brought you through evil. 
Joshua, similar, that's, they're brought through the river of Jordan to be delivered on the other side where God would permanently set up his dwelling place and he gives this identity to the people. John the Baptist, same thing. He's, he's calling people back to actually go through the Jordan. It's a replaying of Exodus. And what's happening there is they're repenting of all the faithlessness that they have but they're preparing to be this new Israel that God is going to form when the Messiah comes. And when he comes, y'all, this, when the Messiah comes, he gets baptized. Why? Why does Jesus need to get baptized? Well, it's because he's chasing this pattern. He's fulfilling something. He's in the Jordan. He's showing he's the faithful Jew, out of the waters he comes. It echoes back to being passed through the waters of the Exodus. The heavens open, they split open. It refers to when God let the floodwaters come, and it also shows that when God was separating the world out. It says the spirit like a dove descends upon Jesus. Where's that from? Oh yeah, Genesis 1. The spirit is descending over the earth, and then God says to Jesus, you are my son. So baptism in the Bible has always been about deliverance from evil through these chaos waters, given a new identity and a new purpose. Delivered from evil to declare war on evil. And so with that context, Peter is inviting the Jews. He's warning them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Pass through these waters and become what you were made for. It's not saving them. Remember, this is it's nothing magical about the lake water. But it is them entering into this story that has been painted forever that I am not of the world anymore. I have been saved and my allegiance is to Jesus. And if I could just belabor this just a little bit longer, this scene was prophesied about to happen. Isaiah 11. Remember I talked about how God is rescuing the exiles out. He's reaching out his hand. He's setting up a banner for the nations. This remainder, this remnant said there'll be a highway for them to pass through just as there was for the Israel on the day they came out of Egypt. So he's using his arm. That language there, it's power on behalf of Israel to deliver them from Egypt. The word remainder there is to shoot us to Noah, this remnant that passes through the waters. The Psalms talk regularly about how the chaos waters are our enemies. So they are being delivered from this chaotic mess of being enemies. I'm not stretching there. That's imagery that's used in the Bible. So God is rescuing this people and he's delivering them through the chaos water. So when they go under the water, this scene was prophesied about. This happened. You are my people. You 
will be signified not by evil, but by me. That's so good. Baptized into Christ to share his life, share his rule. One of my favorite movies still, just uncontested, is Remember the Titans. I know, it's pretty basic, but what I just love so much about that movie as I get older, and there's just layers and layers to unpack, but, you know, just all of the evil that was surrounding that. If you've not seen it, I mean, my gosh, you've been under a rock all of the evil that was surrounding this football team. So what was happening is this is the first kind of time that schools were being integrated in Virginia. So black students and white students were in one place. And they hired Coach Boone, who was a black man, to lead this team. The team was originally led by a white man. So there's friction there. And so for Boone, some of my favorite lines is when he talks about the uniform. When you put on this uniform, you will be perfect. You drop a pass, you run a mile. You miss a block, you run a mile. For Boone, the uniform was something so much greater than what was happening. Yes, this was football. He's a football coach. He wants his team to excel, and they did. They won the state championship. But for Boone, this was so much more. He wanted to teach these men how to become brothers. He wanted to teach these men that you fight for one another. You are in relationship together, and it's signified by this uniform. And yes, they were wildly successful that year. But I think what was so probably even more impactful, was that people that were enemies sat together in the same stadium and cheered together. There was a oneness. Their success on the fields, their playing for a common goal and a common purpose transcended everything and it actually changed everything. That's what you're entering into. You are being rescued from evil, given a new uniform, in a sense, to then go out and live amongst evil, declare war on evil, and change it. That's so good. I think later Peter would reflect on this same scene on Mount Sinai. So in 1 Peter 2, he talks about this priesthood, but he's getting it from Mount Sinai where God has brought them through these chaos waters. On the other side, there's an identity. You're mine, you're chosen, you're royalty, you're priests. And then he reflects on that years later after having kind of replayed that out. And he says the same, like, copy and paste. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The Jews at Pentecost, they would have absolutely known what they were being invited into. 
They were this new royal priesthood. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a priest? And I think the a clue is in Acts 2.32 where it says God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the Spirit. And I think like, we don't communicate this as much. I don't know why in academia. We get the death, burial, resurrection pretty good. But we just, like, side past the, like, ascension of Jesus. That he just went up into the heavens. We don't talk about that one much. But it is so vital for early Christians to talk about it, the way that they thought about it, this ascension into the heavens that God is with, or that Jesus is with the Father, that he's interceding with us. Let me explain. The prophets, they would regularly talk about how God's presence was on a mountain, okay? Garden of Eden, on a mountain. Noah's Ark, on a mountain. Mount Sinai, a mountain, Regularly, God's presence would start up in the hills. The temple in Jerusalem on a mountain. And so regularly, people are being invited to ascend into the presence. Adam and Eve, to be priests, to be in the presence of God, to then go steward the earth and go down the mountain. Uh, Moses invited to go up Mount Sinai and then go down Mount Sinai to teach them how to live. The priests, again, I'm not making this up, they would go into the presence of God. They would make a sacrifice. It would be called a sacrifice of ascent. It would go up into the presence of God, and then they would be invited to ascend into the presence. And y'all, again, this is just unbelievable to me. The Jews, as they're walking up that hill, Years and years of silence, they would sing these songs of ascent where they're singing over one another. We're about to be in the presence of God, hopefully. And then he's there. We have ascended the hill. And God is there. And he's inviting us to go through these chaos waters to be delivered on the other side, given this identity as priest. And Peter would say, I'm not inviting you just to come up the hill. I'm inviting you into the windy, fiery presence of God. To then go down the mountain and represent the presence of God as a mobile hotspot. I just like, I, I did not hear this stuff in my theological tradition. I feel like I, I got the seven like D's of humanity. <laughs> You're a depraved, defiled wretch, deserving of destruction, despair, death, depression, and the devil. Yes, some of that is true. I'm not diminishing that, but I just, what is amazing to me is we miss completely this identity that God is calling you into. 
Ephesians 2, God has raised us up with Christ and seated, seated us with him in the heavens. You are royalty. And they will see his face, Revelation 22. His name will be on their foreheads. You're his possession. And they, us, will reign with him forever. Being a priest of royalty is not just something that you do. It is who you are. You're invited to share in the reign. You're invited to intercede on the behalf of others. God, would you rescue my friend? You're doing a priest's work there. When you worship, when we come together and we're worshiping, you're doing priest work. You are royal sons and daughters of the king. And I'm not, I'm not like talking about the self-elevation that the church, I'm sorry, not the church, that the world like talks about where you just are like the best thing on earth. No, we are still dust. But we're dust if you are following Jesus that is animated by the very presence of God. It's just as, as one who wrestled for years of self-hatred, as one who is just abused by my peers and tried everything I could to be something for other people, to then hear about a God who was more or less just disgusted with me. If you're listening to a preacher or a podcast, that is feeding you that all you are is just the worst and you suck, it's garbage. It is not what the Father says. You're a priest of royalty. You're a temple of the living God. Commanded and invited to carry the presence of God wherever you are. That's a much more exciting story than the ones that I've heard. So I do, I want to, I want to, I guess, invite you. We're going to enter into just a, a prayer, an ancient prayer practice. We love the ancient stuff here. Van, you can, you can come up, but don't play anything. <laughs> Not yet. So, again, there's been a lot happening here, I know. (laughs) We've talked about so many different things, but again, I I told you at the beginning, I just, I wanted to remind you of some invitations of being the presence in the temple and a priest of God. So I do think that requires us to actually ask the Father, how to do that. So I'm going to just invite you, if you want to stand, if you want to sit, you can. However you want to posture your heart, if hands out or just whatever. I just want you to receive this. I'm going to read things over to you that are true things about you from the Word. We're going to do a prayer practice called imaginative prayer. And so just just 
with me, would you, would you go into just a place into your mind where you just remember so, like the presence of God was so thick. It was real, like you, you know that God is real. And just go into that place there into your mind. Where were you? What were you doing? What were you smelling? <laughs> Where is it that you knew that God loved you? help you, I guess, take captive these thoughts, anxious thoughts, evil thoughts that you are nothing. I just want to, from God's word, remind you of who you are. This is Christ's declaration over you. You are a new creation. You are chosen. You're a priest of royalty, First Peter. You are God's child, John 1. You are Jesus' friend, John 15. You've been raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly realm, Ephesians 2. You are beloved, First John 5. The Lord loves you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31. The Lord rejoices over you with singing and with dancing. <laughs> he sings and he dances. He rejoices over you. Zephaniah 3. You are precious in the sight of God. Isaiah 43. Jesus will never Leave or abandon you. You are his child. Matthew 28. And just stay in that posture. I know we can know these things can be true, but a big piece of this is just we struggle to believe. So would you ask the Father, he said all of these things over you from his word, would you just right now ask him, or tell him, I do believe, but help my unbelief.